The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, good morning. (laughs) Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the blessings that we have in Christ. Thank you for the salvation that is greater than what any of the Old Testament saints experienced. Thank you for the confidence that we have and that we can come before you and be be near you and have assurance that we have grace and help. Thank you for being able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, Christ. Lord, thank you for the blessing of the book of Hebrews. And I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonders of Christ through it this morning. In Jesus' name, and for your glory, amen. All right. You, I would encourage you guys to open your Bible to the book of Hebrews. We are not going to be uh, reading the whole thing, <laughs> but we're going to be covering the whole thing. So just be good to have it as a resource to look through as we go. So first, I want to just cover some of the preliminary information, background info on the book. Um, The author is unknown. He doesn't say his name. He's somebody who was imprisoned and then is hoping to be released, it says at the end of the book. Um, There are a lot of theories out there, and a couple of them, I'll give you some of the more likely ones, I would say. One of them is that it was a sermon written or spoken by Paul but recorded by Luke. It's one theory. Another one is that it was Apollos, which I think personally is the most likely because he was a lawyer and this book is laid out immaculately. <laughs> the The Greek in it is very high level um, and the the arguments, none of, no loose ends are left hanging. It's, it's, everything is, soft, is, is thought through and presented very well. So that's my guess, but it's probably not Paul, um, but we don't really know who it is, and it really doesn't matter who it is. Um, it matters what the truths are that are contained. Um, the audience are Hebrews. Now, there are some... You need to know that this book isn't just written to believers, and that's going to become clear near the end. I'm going to talk through one of the... the problem passages. One of the harder to understand passages, which is um, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Um, This book is written mostly to believers, but there are probably unbelievers, as we've heard from the sermons recently, mixed in to the church. People who are still kind of trying to hang on to the Old Testament faith, trying to hang on to the Old Covenant, and not really sure if they're going to commit or not to Christianity. So, That's something to keep in mind. Uh, The time, it's just a couple years before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That's when the temple was destroyed. And from what he says, it's very clear that the temple wasn't destroyed yet, but it was really close to there. Persecution was ramping up. Timothy, it says later in the book, um, Timothy uh, was recently released. So we we know that persecution was ramping up, but it was right before the the temple, so that's really a pretty small window. The MacArthur Study Bible says 67 to 69 AD, so 
pretty small window. Um, and the overview. This is where it gets fun for me, because we're getting into the content. Um, the writer is writing to mostly believing a Hebrew audience. The focus is the superiority of Christ, our salvation, and our future hope over the Old Covenant with its temple, priesthood, sacrifices, examples of faith, and earthly city. Christ's superiority demands confident assurance, eager expectation, sober submission, heartfelt gratitude, and faithful adherence. So we're going to dig into those topics as we go. Now, I'm not going to go through and just present an outline. I've, I've included, um, I just copied and pasted MacArthur's outline, and that's italicized in your notes. Um, so that's just the outline, big, big picture of the book. And I'm going to go in and show you just a few helps as you read the book of Hebrews. I'm really just trying to give you the tools that you need to read the book of Hebrews and make it a little bit more clear. Um, not going to hit every point. That'd be impossible. Sorry, 13 chapters is too much. So we're going to dig in. The first three verses, a better name. And it says, he is the radiance of his, as in God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. This is speaking of Christ. The whole book is talking about Christ. It's talking about how, he's, how great he is. And this is specifically saying Christ is the exact representation of God's na nature. So as one of my theology professors in my undergrad said, he said, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. As in, when you look at Christ, when you see his character in the Gospels, you are seeing God. Don't be, don't, don't be, be tricked in thinking, oh, well, there's a different God of the Old Testament, and there's a, this God of the New Testament, and Jesus shows this gracious... No. Jesus is God, and she's, he shows us exactly who God is. And that's glorious. That's clarifying for us. And so we continue on, and it says that he is better than the angels. He's a greater messenger, and he has a greater message. And part of that greater message is a greater salvation. So he sets up the, the superior, superiority of Christ to angels, which he later uses in the beginning of chapter 2 to drive home that submitting to the gospel is an even more weighty matter than Israel submitting to the Old Covenant. So let's just read the first few verses of chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we no neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them. And it continues on. So we see that, that the message of the Old Covenant was given through angels, and now Christ himself, the Son himself, a greater one than the angels, has come and given us a new covenant. And so it's even more significant that we need to listen, we need to pay attention, we need to submit to this new covenant. That's the point that he's driving home. And I'm going to keep reading the, the rest of verse 4. 
God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So it's just a side note in the notes. As we see in verse 4, gifts of the Spirit attest to the gospel. They are not an end in themselves, but a means God uses to bear witness to our salvation. This is kind of significant for me personally because I was charismatic for a few years and I really sought the gifts of the Spirit and was totally convinced that uh, that they were for today, for right now, and that we need to seek them and try to experience them. And so it was ungrounding for me. It, it brought the focus away from just focusing on the gospel and it took it and spread my focus out to all sorts of other pursuits. And this is really encouraging because it's saying, no, the gifts are about focusing on the gospel. So even, even the ones that we at Maranatha would say are still for today are for focusing on the gospel. And that's really cool that this is right here. Um, the next few verses, it says a greater savior. In verse 10, it says Christ is perfected through sufferings. Now, I don't know about you, but I thought Jesus was already perfect. So what is this saying? <laughs> so the, the word perfected, it means to be made complete or to be finished. So still, that doesn't really clarify what this means. So let's go ahead and keep reading in the notes. Verse 9 sets up the context, suffering of death. And verses 11 through 18 add elements of temptation, solidarity with the children of God, and confirm the theme of death. So in essence, Christ went through the sufferings of temptation and death by which he became complete or finished or perfect. The author of our salvation. He, that's what he became perfectly. So he thereby renders Satan powerless, delivers us from the fear of death, brings us into right relation with God, and mercifully comes to our aid in temptation with understanding. If Christ hadn't gone through sufferings, he wouldn't be our perfect savior. So the fact of his, of his saviorship is perfected through the sufferings that he endured. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> Some head nods, so that's good. Um, in chapter 3, the writer keeps going and says that he's better than Moses. I thought it was a cool, a cool word choice that he said Moses was faithful in God's house. Christ is faithful over God's house, which is us, the church. And so he's starting to bring in this spiritual element of the household of God being believers. And then chapter four is one of my favorite chapters in the whole book. He talks about a better rest. Um, Joshua, in, in Hebrew, the name is Yehoshua, which is actually the exact same name of Jesus in Hebrew, which is an interesting similarity. I'm not going to read too much into it but it also means salvation or deliverance. So the, the writer of Hebrews is kind of doing a play on words. He's saying if Joshua was able, right, let's, find the, let's find the actual verse. 
it's chapter four, verse eight, and he's been talking about he's been talking about how the Old Testament um, Israelites in the wilderness they were disobeying God in at the end of chapter three. Um, and beginning of chapter four, and he's saying, God even told them, you shall not enter my rest, but there does remain a rest for the people of God. And he's going into and kind of developing that theology here. So he says in verse eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Um, there's one element that I, I wish I would have said beforehand, but... Um, He says in verse 7, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So he's building this, this case for the Sabbath rest, not just being a once a week reality under the old covenant, but that every day, we as believers get to enter the rest that God himself has enjoyed since he finished creation. We get to enter not just a physical rest of our bodies, but a spiritual rest, resting from our works and laboring for salvation. We don't labor for our salvation. Christ did it. We get to rest in his finished work. And so this is just a beautiful passage that's talking about this 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 culmination of Sabbath that is in Christ. It's bringing the reality front and center and just saying, look at what we get to enjoy in Christ. It's beautiful. Continuing on in chapter four, the superior, superiority of Jesus Christ's priesthood. Christ as high priest, um, I think, although I would love to, for the sake of time, I'm just going to leave those comforting passages in your notes, and I would love for you to read them on your own. Um, he exhorts, it's a really strong exhortation to full commitment to Christ, um, and we're going we're gonna to dig into that at the end after I go through the whole book. Um, and then he starts talking about Christ's priesthood being like Melchizedek's. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now, Melchizedek, there's a lot of debate about who Melchizedek was. In, in my undergrad, I went to Moody Bible Institute, and my professor made a case for Melchizedek being a, a, an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. I... I'm not sure I'm fully convinced. I don't know the answer for that. However, <laughs> if we focus on what the text says, it is clear that because of the wording, um, in a quotation from the Old Testament, he says in chapter 5, verse 6, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, the foreverness of 
Christ's priesthood is according to the same foreverness of Melchizedek's priesthood. So he doesn't have a genealogy written down. He doesn't have a beginning or end. He is like Christ. I don't know if he is Christ or not. I'm not, I'm not here to tell you. Sorry. <laughs> um, but it helps us understand Christ better. And he makes this case saying, well, the Old Testament has this old priesthood that was set up and... I want to tell you everything in the book, and I don't know if I can, but um, he's saying the Old Testament has this priesthood that, that people went in and they, they tried to understand, they tried to, to get right with God through this priesthood, but it just gave them, it gave, it, it cleansed their flesh, but Christ's priesthood is a different priesthood. He's not from the tribe of Levi, and that was never recorded that there would be a different priesthood but we see that there is a different priesthood in Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is greater even than Abraham because Abraham gives him a tithe and Melchizedek <clears throat> blesses him and the greater blesses the lesser. So we have this greater priesthood even than the Levitical priesthood and it makes the argument that Levi was in, was in the loins of Abraham. And so you could even say that Levi paid his tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham. So you have this exaltation of this greater priesthood that is forever and it's better than the Levitical priesthood. And that's what our Lord is priest through, that, that priesthood. So he's making this case for Christ being better than even the priesthood of the Old Testament. I just did that a lot extemporaneously, and we might be going over some of that again in the notes, but we're just going to walk through it. <laughs> um, so, in this passage, though, it does have this statement about setting aside the Old Covenant, and I guess the question is, did that really happen? Did Christ set aside the Old Covenant? So let's read some of these passages, 7, 18, and 19. For on the one hand, they're all in your notes if you want. Um, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verses 24 and 25, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 8.1. Now the main point, and this is key, now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Taking your seat is this imagery of completion, resting, it's done. That's something that the Old Testament priesthood never could do. It was year after year, week after week, offering these sacrifices and offerings. But Christ, once for all, better sacrifice, better priesthood, he sat down. So that's the main point. And keep going, 8, 4, B through 5, A. 
There are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 8.13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This was written right before the destruction of the temple. It was getting ready to disappear in a very literal way. 10.1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. 10, verses 12 and 14, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And 10.18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So, did he set aside the Old Testament sacrifices? Well, not exactly. He fulfilled it. Exactly. He fulfilled them. He was the perfect sacrifice. And he didn't just cleanse our bodies. He cleansed our consciences, as it says. And it was once, once, for, all. once for all. Over. Done. Praise be to God. <laughs> yes. That's where our confidence comes from. So, since the main point is clarified, these statements are consistent with what Jesus himself said. Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Hebrews is emphasizing the wondrous reality that we enjoy once for all cleansing from our sins through the better priesthood, sacrifice, and covenant of Christ's ministry. So, then he transitions into talking about his priestly ministry through a better covenant and in a better sanctuary. And it was a really cool thing that he said Moses served to make a copy of the real thing because he saw a pattern when he was on the mountain. Christ serves in the real temple of God, which is not made with human hands. And here it's not just talking about us as the household of God. It's talking about the temple of God. So where God resides spiritually in heaven is what it's talking about. God is only accessible to humans through Christ's heavenly ministry. So when it talks about him going through the veil and entering into the holy place and, and Christ made a way for us to go before the throne room of, of grace, that is something that the Old Testament saints never got. There was one high priest who got to go into the holy of holy, or yes, into the holy of holies. That was it. Once a year. Christ tore the veil. He made a way for us. He opened the way for us. And we get to the privilege of going before God every single day. That's crazy when you compare our situation to the Old Testament. All right. Continuing on. <laughs> By a better sacrifice and Roman numeral four, the superiority of believers' privileges, saving faith. Verse, uh, chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, I'm going to read them. They are 
the turning point of the book. It's the, it's the point where he transitions from the theological foundations that he's been building the entire last nine and a half chapters to the confidence and blessings and commandments for godly living that flow out of the truths that he just explained. So let's read it. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And it continues on into commandments. It's really interesting to me that one of the first commandments he says, he says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, and next, not forsaking our own assembling together. Coming together and having fellowship together is really close to one of the first points he makes. It's like the third point he makes. It's pretty huge. It's interesting to me. And so moving on, it says false faith. That is um, another, another difficult passage to understand. I would say it's a little easier to understand than the one that we're going to take a deeper dive into later. Um, and what we're going to explain and explore in chapter 6 will help us understand chapter 10. Um, so we're not going to dive into this together because I think covering the one will cover both, um, in essence, as far as the difficulty in understanding it, at least. Roman numeral 5, the superiority of Christian behavior. I'm not explaining as much content here because you're more familiar with the last portion of Hebrews. Um, more sermons are preached on it. It's just more commonly known. But in relation to other people, in relation to ourselves, in relation to God, the theme of Christ being better than the old system is continued in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 13. Here, Christ's superiority leads to the idea of the Hebrews' identity with Christ and the future heavenly city, that it's more valuable than their physical identity with the sacrificial system and the city of Jerusalem. And that also flows into the spiritual sacrifices that are commanded in verses 15 and 16. So he's just, it's another comparison. It's another beautiful, like, this is, this is lesser than what we have in Christ. And it's really interesting that he's talking to Hebrews and he says, so let's go to him outside the camp and let's bear his reproach. Looking for a better city. They're in Jerusalem, which is about to be destroyed. They're in Jerusalem, holding on to their Hebrew identity, to the Israelite identity. And he's saying, you have something better than that in Christ. Let's go be with Christ instead. Let's look forward to a not earthly city that's to come. And then he talks about the sacrifices of thanksgiving and of service, of good, good deeds that are acceptable to God. And so that's, that's what we get to do in this new covenant. 
Um, one thing that I think I skipped over, um, yeah, under Roman numeral four, letter E, persevering faith. Just the transition, he talks about the heroes, the, the hall of faith you probably have heard about in chapter 11. And that's a beautiful chapter about all these people that are very encouraging and they, they're very challenging in their example of faith. And you would expect that the writer of Hebrews would then say, so look to their example and follow it. But instead, true to form, in the first few verses of chapter 12, what does he say? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's saying, look, all of those people had faith. Christ isn't just a better example of faith. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. So look to him, lest you become discouraged. Look to him. Keep looking to him. <laughs> so that's one thing I wanted to bring out for you. We're on the last page of the notes, and we're going to go over briefly the warning passage. So go ahead and turn to Hebrews 6. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. It's interesting, the first three verses are kind of like a catechism, an early church catechism of what they would teach new believers. Um, so I'm just going to read from the first bit. This is when somebody wanted to come and be baptized, they would teach them the basics of the faith, and this is it. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, if God permits. So he's, he's given this explanation of what, they, what they'll teach new believers, and then he continues on. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. This is a sober passage, and it's scary. <coughs> what is it saying? There are a few different views here. It could be talking about... The most ridiculous view is that, um, is that he's just giving a hypothetical scenario, and it's not actually real. If it's hypothetical and it couldn't happen, why would he talk about it? That doesn't make any sense. A second view is that he's saying that there are true believers who then don't just backslide, but they apostatize, and that they are no longer in the faith, and that they can never come back. If that's the case, we're hopeless. <laughs> the third view, and the one that I'm going to present to you and try to explain why I believe that it's actually consistent with it, is that this is not talking about actual believers, but people who look like believers, 
and that they do apostatize, like Judas, for example. They looked like believers to everybody except for the one who judges the heart. And then they fall away. And it's saying when those people reject Christ, like like Pastor Todd talked about in his sermon on the unpardonable sin, when these people knowingly, they know everything that they need to know about Christ. And they say, no, I reject you outright. I don't believe, I'm not going to submit to what I know. I'm going to reject Christ. I'm going to say that that is not the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say, this is bad. And they ended up crucifying Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's go through. Um, go ahead and turn to John 10, 27 through 30. For the sake of time, I think I'm only going to go to this one of the three. But eternal security of believers is very clearly taught in scripture. Once you're saved, you don't have to worry about falling. And I think this is one of the strongest passages that is just very clear. John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's pretty clear. <laughs> so, what's this passage doing? <laughs> well, it's not contradicting this other, these words of Christ. So, what's <coughs> meant here by these seemingly clear descriptions of a believer then? Well, we first need to think about, are there any times when Christ spoke about people who seemed like they were saved, but they turned out not being saved? Can you think of any examples? Judas, Judas yes. Any parables or, sorry? Parable of the soils, yes. Anything else? Definitely. <coughs> yep. There's another one. The wheat and tares, yeah, that's a good one. There's also Matthew chapter 7. There's the passage where he talks about, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. They'll say to me on that day, oh, didn't we prophesy in your name and, and heal people and drive out demons in your name? And he'll say... I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like people who are saved. I would be fooled if somebody was going around driving out demons and healing people in Christ's name in that age. <laughs> that would be very convincing. But Christ knows. They never knew him. <coughs> And I think that is especially clarifying. That example is especially clarifying for what I think is the hardest of all of the descriptions. But we're, let's keep going. 
You also, yeah, the parable of the sower and the seeds, the ones that fell by the way and were, were plucked up, the ones that fell in the rocky soil, the thorny soil. All of that, it seems like they accept it with joy, the one in the rocky soil, they, they accept it with joy, but then they fall away. Things get hard, things get tough. <coughs> so here we see that it's not, it's not someone's emotional acceptance of Christ that proves that they're saved. It's their perseverance in Christ that shows that they're saved. Let's go to B number three. So let's look at the actual words and phrases that the writer of Hebrews uses. Been enlightened. The, the word in oh, the word in verse four. The phrase, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, is that something that you could say of those who were in the parable of the sowers? They received the word. They were enlightened. And they, in a sense, received it. But it didn't take root. It didn't bear fruit. And that's how we know who is saved. So it's very similar to what Jesus himself said. So how about tasted the heavenly gift? Well, this is a really good, um, a really good passage from this commentary from R. Kent Hughes on Hebrews. And it's just just draws out an, a, a similarity between the Old Testament and what we see in this passage. I think it's really cool. The reasons I hold to this interpretation are as follows. First, the participation in spiritual realities of those who fall away, though they have been enlightened and shared and tasted the things of God, parallels the privileged experience of the children of Israel in the wilderness who fell away and died in unbelief. As part of the covenant community, the fallen Israelites had placed blood on the doorposts, eaten the Passover lamb, miraculously crossed the Red Sea, observed the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, tasted the miraculous waters at Marah, daily ate manna, and heard the voice of God at Sinai. But their hearts were hardened in unbelief, and they fell away from the living God. True, some of those who perished in the wilderness were regenerate, and some were unregenerate but both were visible members of the covenant community and thus shared a profound mutuality of spiritual experience. Similarly, these catechized Christians of Hebrews 6 were accepted into the covenant community and likewise experienced something of the spiritual realities, but fell away. So it's people who had gone through and been taught the basics, but they fell away. Yeah. Oh, a catechism is like a list of questions and answers or like a, a, a basics. Uh, you'll see it in high church more often nowadays. Um, we're just using that terminology. He's using that terminology to refer to the fact that they had specific topics that they went through and taught new believers. Okay. So it's like a systematized way of making sure they understand the basics. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Gotta find my place again. So these people tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted kind of like the Old Testament Israelites tasted the manna. They're part of the, the Christian community. They're in their midst. They're, they're experiencing some of the blessings, but they're not actual believers. And then shared in the Holy Spirit. For me, this is the hardest one. And I think this is where Matthew 7 comes in and helps us realize actually the Holy Spirit can move through people and work through people, even miraculously. He was, he helped Saul. He was, Demas was, was said to be a fellow worker, a co-worker with, with Paul. And then because he loved this world, he forsook Paul. You have Judas who was sent out with the 12 and he went out and he was casting out demons like the rest of them. He was doing all the right things. He shared in the Holy Spirit, I would say, but he wasn't of God. I would say we would have a really hard time saying that anyway, since Christ said he was a devil and that it would be better for him if he hadn't been born. So we see that this is consistent with scripture and it doesn't mean that there's a contradiction here. It's hard, <laughs> but it is consistent. And the rest of the the rest of the wordings and, and phrases, I think you can understand with what we've explained there. So, um, just a little a little caveat: crucifying once again the Son of God. It's not saying that they had already crucified him, but that in addition to the real crucifixion. They, were, they would be scorning his death and treating the Son of God's sacrifice as meaningless, like those who crucified him. Um, so these people, that's what they would be doing. But we know that the Spirit is a seal of our inheritance. And no one has greater authority than God to break that seal. A seal in Roman times was a symbol of authority and like nobody is allowed to break this seal unless they have the authority to do so. When you send a letter, the intended recipient gets that letter. And only if you have higher authority are you able to break that seal. Nobody has higher authority than God. And the Holy Spirit is the seal for us. So what's the point of this passage? Well. It is a sober warning. It's a sober warning to those who are in the covenant community. They're in, they're in the church. And they're just not sure yet about it. They're actually kind of teetering towards, yeah, I don't really think I want to do this. I don't think I'm going to give my life to God. I think I'm going to totally actually say this is bogus and go the other way. This is the people who are resistant who are rejecting and he's saying watch out if you're that person and you fully reject like the Pharisees rejected like they who did the unpardonable sin like like this passage says and then have fallen away it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame this isn't a warning saying if you're not sure whether or not you're a Christian and you're not sure if you are ready, you're still counting the costs, it's not saying, well, then you're, it's impossible for you to be saved. 
No. It's saying if you're downright rejecting Christ and you're going totally the other way and you're saying, forget it. It's not saying those who want to be saved have something to worry about. It's saying those who don't want to be saved have something to worry about. And it's just helping us see there's a difference. Understand that. Recognize it. Don't get shaken when people leave the faith, when they apostatize, when they have a deconstructionist movement fad and they they ditch. That's That's explained. They seemed legitimate. They weren't. That's okay. God's still God. Christ is still king. He's still good. And he's still faithful. And he still preserves us and our faith in him. So, that's pretty much the content that I wanted to explain to you all. Any questions, comments, anything? All right. I'm going to read you the benediction from the end of the book. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your wisdom in giving us this book, which explains the blessings we have in Christ, the superiority of Christ, and the confidence we can have in him. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in full assurance and full obedience, that we would recognize that it is a fearsome thing to disobey such a great covenant, such a great sacrifice, such a great salvation. Help us to live according to the salvation bought by Christ. Thank you. Help us to live in gratitude for the whole week. <laughs> in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Thanks. You've been listening to Presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.